1: Welcome
0: to the New Books Network.
2: Good morning. My name is Katrina Anderson, and I am a host on the New Book Network's African American series. Joining me today is Dr. Isabella Morales to discuss her new book, Happy Dreams of Liberty, An American Family in Slavery and Freedom. Dr. Morales is the editor of the Princeton University's expansive public history initiative, the Princeton and slavery project. She also serves as the digital projects manager at the Stoutsburg Sourland African American Museum. Good morning, Dr. Morales. Thank Good you for morning. joining. Good
0: morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me.
2: So today I'm we are here to discuss your wonderful new book that you created. So as we begin, can you tell us a little bit about the book?
0: Sure. Uh, Happy Dreams of Liberty is essentially a story of the Townsend family, the enslaved children of two white cotton planter brothers, Samuel and Edmund Townsend, and several enslaved women that they owned on their vast Alabama plantations in the decades before the Civil War, and in the United States, slavery followed the condition of the mother. That is, historians speak for, uh, no matter who your father was, black or white, free or enslaved, if your mother was enslaved, you were born into slavery too. So the Townsends weren't just Samuel and Edmund's children. They were also their property, human property which isn't actually what made the Townsend family unusual. Enslaved women in the antebellum South were incredibly vulnerable to rape and abuse from white men like the Townsend brothers who had such immense power over their lives. What was unusual about the Townsend family was how Samuel and Edmund viewed the children of these women whom they had abused. You know, neither brother ever married, so they had no wives or legitimate children to carry on their legacy. These enslaved children were the only heirs they would ever have. And in their minds, that's what they were, their rightful heirs, despite the fact that they were legally property. You know, to Samuel and Edmund, these children were superior to other enslaved people because they had Townsend blood. So when Edmund died in 1853, he tried to leave his two enslaved sons and two daughters almost the entirety of his $500,000 fortune. And this was actually the largest bequest from a slave owner to enslaved people in Alabama history. In today's currency, Edmund's $500,000 would be worth more like $17 million dollars. Now, unfortunately, Edmund's will didn't stand up in court. But when his younger brother Samuel died three years later in 1856, he left a very similar will, leaving his $200,000 fortune to his nine enslaved children, as well as Edmund's two daughters. So these men were the antebellum equivalents of multimillionaires. And they wanted to leave their property to enslave children who were themselves property, which was, as you might imagine, a shock to their local community and also an outrage to the rules of white supremacy in their time. But in 1860, after four years of lawsuits, uh, the Townsends were actually freed and did begin to inherit some of their father's fortune. So what I do in Happy Dreams of Liberty is follow members of the Townsend family in that journey from slavery to freedom, as well as their journeys all across the country in the second half of the 19th century, looking at their lives and the very different ways that they experienced race and freedom from the Civil War to Reconstruction to ultimately the rise of Jim Crow.
2: So given your expansive topic, how did you become interested in it?
0: I actually started the research that ultimately became this book when I was an undergraduate at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. That's where I got my BA. And my junior year, I took a research seminar in the history department called Slavery in the Americas. And the idea was that in addition to learning about the history of slavery, each student in the course would produce a research paper based on original archival research in the university's special collections library. Which was a pretty daunting prospect for someone like me who had never set foot in an archive before. You know, I had no idea how I was supposed to find a compelling original topic that I could write 20 to 30 pages on. So... One night, I I really was just in my dorm room, literally scrolling through the library website, hoping something would jump out at me, and I came across a listing for a collection called the SD Cabinus Papers. It was named for a Huntsville, Alabama lawyer, Septimus Cabinus, and there was a reference to a specific case that Cabinus had dealt with during his career this wealthy white cotton planter, Samuel Townsend, who died in 1856 and left a will that bequeathed his really enormous fortune to his and his brother's enslaved children. And that jumped out at me. Um, And as it turned out, the deeper I dug into this archival collection and research about this family, the Townsends, the more I kept finding and the more questions it raised. You know, what did it mean to be the child of your enslaver? Why did Samuel want to free the Townsends? Where did they go after their emancipation? How did they use their inheritance? And ultimately, what kind of lives did they have? So this you know, 20-page research paper became my senior thesis, and then my dissertation uh, when I got my PhD at Princeton. And now, more than 10 years later, it's my first book, Happy Dreams of Liberty. Wow. So what was the
2: process from turning the dissertation into the book? And how was that process influenced? Did you have a particular audience in mind that you were targeting?
0: Right. So, you know, as you know, in grad school, we read hundreds, literally hundreds of historical monographs, not to mention all the journal articles and book reviews and other sources. And with those as our models, there's a certain way that I think we kind of subconsciously learn to write like a scholar, and I'm saying that in quotes. There's an academic style that sometimes, you know, gets pushed on students, depending on your field or your instructors and advisors, heavy on jargon, heavy on theory or methodology. And there's nothing wrong with that in itself if you are writing for your colleagues or fellow historians. But it's a double-edged sword because you can be saying something absolutely brilliant that all your peers understand, but that's also completely incomprehensible to readers outside your specialized field, right? And I didn't want to write strictly for professional historians. That's something I knew from the very beginning coming into grad school. I already had an interest in narrative history and storytelling, and I wanted my research to be accessible to a less specialized audience. You know, I wanted undergraduate history majors to be able to read it and get something out of it, or even readers completely outside the field of history. You know, I sometimes say my audience uh, is my husband. He's a physicist, a very smart man, but not trained in history and not familiar with the whole historiography of slavery in the United States. But I wanted him to be able to read my dissertation too. And, you know, that wasn't always a popular position to take in my graduate program, but I... I had the most fantastic advisor who also writes narrative and who supported me throughout the entire program. And so I was able to write my dissertation as a narrative history, not in that highly academic style, which meant when I was revising my dissertation into a book manuscript, I had a bit of a head start. I'd been thinking about my audience a little more broadly from the beginning, so it was a bit easier to make the revisions I needed to create a book that, I hope at least, might appeal to readers outside of academia.
2: That's It's fascinating. I would say it appeals to both academics and non academics Academics as a graduate student, you have definitely served as a influence in how I want to shape my own writing. Because that is you do so want, kind to hear. You do want to, in some ways, reach that larger audience, um, so that they can make the connections of going back into the historical narrative. So I would say, and you definitely did that with "Happy Dreams of Liberty." Um, you were mentioned that you were inspired by others in your own work. Who are some of those who have served as inspiration to write? happy dreams of liberty, going into narrative histories.
0: Oh, gosh, there are so many amazing books out there that have shaped how I approach this story. Um, Taya Miles's Ties That Bind is a big one. You know, it's the story of a mixed race family, an Afro-Cherokee family in the 19th century. And there are a lot of parallels there to the Townsend's experiences, Uh, Martha Hodes' book, The Sea Captain's Wife, was another model for me, as well as The Invisible Line by Daniel Sharfstein, and then Passing Strange by my own advisor, uh, Marnie Sandweiss. And these are all family stories, often about mixed-race individuals whose experiences echoed the Townsends, and they also happen to be really beautifully written narrative histories, But I also read a lot of fiction, including historical fiction. And that has, you know, inspired me as a writer, too. I absolutely love Hilary Mantel, who recently passed away in her series about Thomas Cromwell, you know, Wolf Hall, Bring Up the Bodies. um, She's so masterful at evoking a time and place. And all of the action takes place, you know, nearly 500 years ago. But she's still able to get into the inner lives of her characters and make the reader empathize with them and their struggles, which is something that's hard to do writing history because we are bound to the sources we have. We can't give our historical actors internal monologues or invent dialogue for them, But I do think that reading fiction can help historians remember that our, you know, characters were people, real people with deep inner lives. They had hopes, dreams and fears, just like any of us. And so that's something I try to convey or pay attention to as a writer wherever I can. You know, the personhood of these historical figures. Very true. Very true.
2: You mentioned that as historians, we are tied to our sources in a way that fiction, historical fiction writers are not. For you, you had also previously mentioned that your source base came from the University of Alabama. Is that where the largest cache of your documents were found for this project?
0: Yes, Um, the SD Cabinets papers that I mentioned at UA, that was my core archival resource for this book for the Townsend family. And these are the legal documents of that Huntsville attorney cabinet who served as the executor of Samuel Townsend's estate after he died. And, you know, fortunately, for historians like me, he saved his records, you know, meticulously. The collection comprises around 15,000 items total. You know, obviously not all related to the Townsends, but that's a big collection. Um, And there are two boxes of letters that were written by the formerly enslaved Townsends themselves, around 170 letters, you know, first-person narratives in their own words, which is an amazing cache of archival material. And, you know, of course, as I found over the years, interpreting these letters was never a straightforward task. They're not perfect windows into the Townsend's Inner minds and thoughts, you know, they're not diary entries. They were very carefully crafted documents written for a specific purpose, and usually that purpose was getting the lawyer, cabinet to send the money out of their father's estate. So, in writing the letters, the Townsends, you know, used what they knew about their audience, cabinet, a white southerner, a former slave owner himself, and presented themselves accordingly. You know, all of which ultimately means that the Townsend's letters need to be read really closely, not just for what they reveal, but for what they hide. And it's an interesting comparison when I look at about a dozen letters in the collection that members of the Townsend family wrote to each other rather than to the lawyer. And these are mostly from one son, Charles Osborne, who was living in Colorado, to his brother Thomas in Alabama after the Civil War. And they really show what the Townsends left out of their messages to the lawyer. You know, Osborne's letters are full of details about his personal life, his political opinions, and they're also the only letters in the collection where the Townsends actually reminisce about their past, their lives in slavery. You know, in one letter, Osborne is talking about his half-brother and his cousin who are also living in Colorado at this time. And he says something like, Wade and Austin and I sit around on Sundays and talk over things that happened 25 years ago in the South, which strikes me as such an amazing line because it's a hint of these private thoughts and conversations that would otherwise be completely lost to time. But All of the letters in the collection, even the ones that are more difficult to interpret, are a really incredible resource, considering that the vast majority of enslaved people didn't leave any sources, especially not in their own words. But because the cabinet's papers exist, when I'm telling the story of this enslaved family, I can use their own words and try to share their voices in some small way. Right. And you did that masterfully well, I must say. Which
2: brings me to when I first began reading the book, I was struck so much by the imagery that you created with Lizzie. Um, so as you were writing that scene, and there are others that are in the book, what was the process like creating that
0: Yeah, that's a really fascinating story with Lizzie. And as some background, the Lizzie that we're discussing here was a woman named Lizzie Perryman. She was very likely the daughter of a white woman, Frances Perryman, and a Black man uh, named Randolph, who lived in Richmond, Virginia. And again, because slavery in the US followed the condition of the mother, in this case, Lizzie, as the daughter of a white woman, was born free. But her existence as the race. daughter of this white woman was an embarrassment to her mother's family. And so when she was around 10 or 11, uh, 11 or 12, her uncle sold her into slavery illegally. But, you know, who's going to believe her word over his? And in 1833, she was sold to Edmund Townsend in northern Alabama, hundreds of miles from her home. And by the age of 19, she would give this 51-year-old cotton planter her enslaver, two daughters named Elizabeth and Virginia. And Edmund's household was a strange place. Like I mentioned before, he never married. And he treated his daughters as if they were free. You know, we have receipts for the clothing that they wore, crinolines, hoop skirts, you know, so they could dress like any white southern belle. And they even learned how to read and write in their father's house, even though that was illegal in Alabama at the time. So it's possible that their mother, Lizzie, who had been born free, was the one who taught them. And then something very strange happened. Around 1850, when um, Edmund and Lizzie's daughters were you know, teenagers, two men from Virginia visited Edmund at his home and confronted him about Lizzie Perryman. They said they knew she was actually free and accused Edmund of essentially abducting and imprisoning her by keeping her as a slave. And they threatened to involve the courts. So Edmund, of course, goes, you know, wait, let's not do anything crazy and he promises these men that when he dies he will officially emancipate lizzie and their daughters and leave them all of his money essentially as reparations for illegally enslaving them so the men leave apparently satisfied and perhaps lizzie also believes edmund um and stays behind because she believes he's going to keep his word And when he dies, as we know, he does try to leave his money to his daughters, but not to Lizzie. Just a short time after these mysterious visitors leave and go back to Virginia, Edmund actually sells her. He does the exact same thing her uncle did in Virginia. You know, as soon as Lizzie became a problem, he got rid of her. So, you know, tragically, the story goes full circle, But the reason I'm able to tell this story in the book is because of something Lizzie's daughters do in the 1850s. They file a freedom suit in court stating that their mother was a free woman and therefore as her daughters they're also free. And to prove that they should not be enslaved, the girls give a summary of Lizzie's story, and they provide a witness, a white man, who swears he was with Edmund on the day that those men from Virginia came and threatened to report Edmund for illegally enslaving Lizzie. Now, the lawyer representing the estate that owns the two girls has to prove that Lizzie was not actually free. So he goes and does some digging. He gets people to interview the Perryman family and their neighbors in Virginia and he's the one who actually turns up the evidence about Fanny Perryman's alleged relationship with Randolph. So it's because of these lawsuits and all the legal wrangling that I get these windows into Lizzie's life and her story. And that, you know, really goes for the whole book. So much of it is based on legal documents. It's a lawyer's archive. And I don't have any letters written by Lizzie. But her daughter's freedom suit, the deposition of that white witness, the lawyer's notes on interviews with people in Richmond, all of these are also important pieces of the puzzle that can provide a ton of information, you know, if you know where to look.
2: Right. It's just Lizzie's story, you know, it's at the beginning and it's so fascinating, but it sets the course for the rest of the book. And that gets into that, I, the next question, you know, as you read the book, you notice the different changing notions of whiteness and blackness in the 19th century and what that meant. It wasn't a fixed state. So as you were grappling with those issues in the book, how did you deal with it?
0: No, you're absolutely right. That is something that's a major thread throughout the book, the role that members of the Townsend's family's race and ancestry played in their lives. You know, Samuel Townsend didn't only leave his children money. Their mixed race ancestry was another powerful bequest because then, as now, racial prejudice damaged people's lives while whiteness gave them privileges and advantages. And members of the Townsend family experienced both of these effects white associates or acquaintances that they encountered over the course of their lives interacted with members of the Townsend family differently depending on perceptions of their physical appearance. Um, There's one letter I found. A government agent, after meeting Samuel's daughter Milka, writes in a letter, you know, quote, the woman is nearly white and says he would never have known that she was African-American if he hadn't also met her husband who had darker skin. And so the 19th century, particularly the second half of the 19th century, when the Townsends um, are emancipated, was a transitional period in the establishment of racial categories and hierarchies in the United States. You know, it was after slavery was abolished, but before the rise of Jim Crow and the one drop rule. So racial lines were more flexible and porous than they would become in the 20th century which meant that mixed-race men and women like the Townsends occupied this space between Black and white, and being in between like that had its advantages. You know, one of the Townsends, Elizabeth, um, the daughter of Edmund and Lizzie, married a white Civil War veteran after the war and moved away from the family to North Carolina. And after that, in censuses and other historical records where she appears, she's described as white. She passed into white society. Her neighbors and community may never have known she was once in. But that wasn't the only path for mixed race people at this point in time. And Elizabeth was the only member of the Townsend family who took that path. You know, Martha Hodes, um, whose book, The Sea Captain's Wife, I mentioned earlier, she coined the phrase shading towards whiteness, as opposed to passing for white, In the 19th century, with this more flexible idea of race, other factors than skin color, like education or property ownership or wealth, could all combine to shade a mixed-race person closer to the social status of whiteness and all of those privileges that came along with it, even if their neighbors knew that they were once enslaved or had mixed-race ancestry. You know, they could have nearly the status of a white person without passing across the color line completely. And so this system gave people like the Townsends the ability to shape their own identities in a way and to carve out a place for themselves where they could exercise their freedom and use their wealth more fully. But of course, the rise of Jim Crow at the turn of the 20th century really changed that. It didn't matter how educated you were or how light your skin was. One drop of African ancestry made you a second-class citizen. You were either black or white. There was no more in between space.
2: Right. And those avenues closed for them because they, the Townsends, they were the ancestry, they were lucky that they had both that mixed race heritage and the money to go with it, um, which allowed them to negotiate that terrain that you mentioned until the 20th century emerged. So from reading your text, what can a reader learn from the experiences of someone such as Thomas Townsend about 19th century American history?
0: Yep, yeah, Thomas is a great example of that concept of shading towards whiteness using the advantages he had to find avenues for social and economic mobility. And Thomas Townsend was one of Samuel's sons, the middle son. He was a teacher, a journalist, a businessman, and he actually returned to Alabama after the Civil War. And so a few years after he had returned. In 1871, he attended an auction at the county courthouse in Huntsville. One of his father's old plantations were was up for sale, and Thomas bought a part of it. And this was the first time when one of the Townsends owned a part of the land itself where they had been enslaved. And, you know, Thomas, being a landowner, being educated, all of this made him a natural leader during the Reconstruction era. He funded an African-American newspaper, the Huntsville Gazette. He assisted Black Union Army veterans to get their government pensions that they were entitled Title to, and he had a a career in local politics. His political career uh, as one of Huntsville's first African American city aldermen actually began at an interesting time in 1880, which was three years after federal troops left the former Confederate states and six years after white Southerners reclaimed control of Alabama's state government. So this is actually the post-Reconstruction period, but Thomas was able to use his money, his presentation of himself as this respectable middle-class man, and his willingness to form strategic alliances with white Southerners to achieve some local prominence and success. And this was a time when African Americans across the country were facing increasing violence and repression. And of course, you know, not even Thomas could escape Jim Crow, as as we were saying. He was ultimately pushed out of local politics, Um, although when he died in 1916, his obituary in a white newspaper described him as a capitalist, which is perhaps the highest praise you could give someone in Gilded Age America. Um, And he's an interesting contrast with another member of the family, his nephew, William Bolden Townsend, who was living in Kansas around the same time. And William Bolden saw the opportunities that the Townsends had after their emancipation really start to close in the 1890s and early 1900s. You know, he was a lawyer in Kansas and a very outspoken critic of local Black leaders who had a sense of superiority based on their wealth or education or skin color, people kind of like his Uncle Thomas. And William Bolden realized that in these changing circumstances, collective action and solidarity was really the only path forward um, for African American activism. Again, that in-between space that Thomas and others had been able to take advantage of just didn't exist anymore.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: Within your story, geography and place matter so much. And it's so interesting that Thomas actually came back to Alabama after he left. He returned to a place where you would think he would want to avoid, but he came back to claim his space in that area.
0: Yes, absolutely. You know, geography played a major role in the different ways that Townsend's experienced their freedom and their lived experiences um, of being formerly enslaved mixed race people. And what I found in my research is that the Townsend's opportunities for social and economic advancement differed really dramatically depending on what region, what state, or even what local community they lived in. You know, the Townsends were emancipated in 1860, one one son, the eldest son in 1858, but the rest in 1860. And at the time, state laws in Alabama prohibited freed slaves from remaining in the state under Penalty of being re enslaved for life. So the Townsends had to leave. And over the following years and decades, they would end up all across the country Ohio, Kansas, Colorado, and for Thomas back to Alabama after the Civil War. And by comparing their experiences in these different places, what we see is that the Townsends' opportunities to pursue that American dream, to achieve social mobility were really dependent on highly local circumstances in concrete ways. You know, as one example, in 19th century Ohio, there was legal precedent that men with more than 50% Anglo-American or European ancestry, whether they had visible African ancestry or not, were entitled to vote. So when Samuel's eldest son, Wesley, was freed in 1858 and moved to Ohio, he may have been considered legally white and able to vote, even though just two years prior, the United States Supreme Court ruled in Dred Scott v. Sanford that African Americans had no rights of citizenship. You know, there was this one rule at the national level, and a completely opposing one at the state and local level. Or we can look at Charles Osborne, who migrated far west to the Rocky Mountains, to Colorado Territory in the 1860s. And Osborne ended up in Georgetown, Colorado, which was a little silver mining boom town, where he experienced a really exceptional level of social and political integration into the community. You know, this was a place where black and white settlers played on the same baseball team, they attended each other's weddings, they formed business partnerships. And the reason this was possible was because of the particular geography and demographics of the Far West. In Colorado, white settlers considered Chinese migrant laborers and Native Americans to be the true outsiders, not African Americans like the Townsends who were Christians, farmers, who largely shared their culture and customs. So in this specific place and time, you know, due to Geography, their local circumstances. The Townsends became a part of the in-group instead of the others, which gave them opportunities that weren't shared by family members in Ohio or Kansas or back in Alabama.
2: That is so true. Now, for myself as a scholar of Black women's history, as I was reading your text, what would you, how would you like to read her to? Understand how you either strengthen or complicate the lived experience of Black women as they are in slavery and freedom in the 19th century.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that um, because we talked about Lizzie Perryman, who I'm fortunate to have some really great sources about, so I can tell a little more of her story. But in general, I did find that the towns and women were harder to trace in the historical record than the men. You know, most of the letters. Written by the Townsends that I have in this collection were written by Samuel's sons. Wesley Townsend, the eldest son, wrote 38 existing letters to the lawyer Cabinus. And Susanna Townsend, the youngest daughter, who who wrote the most letters of any of uh, Samuel's daughters, only wrote nine you know, so that there is a disparity in the sources between the men and the women. Or we can look at the children's mothers, the enslaved women whom Samuel Townsend sexually abused and fathered his nine children with. You know, I can identify five of these women by name, Rainey, Hannah, Winnie, Lucy, and Celia. And my major sources of information about their lives in slavery are not the letters like with their children. These are much more dry sources I'm using, namely estate inventories. You know, in 1858, Samuel's lawyer, Cabinus, made this very detailed inventory and appraisal of all of Samuel Townsend's property. And that meant land, livestock, farm equipment and the enslaved people that he owned as human property, nearly 200 enslaved people at the time of Samuel's death. And this inventory is a very valuable source because it gives their names and ages, any injuries they had, as well as what the lawyer estimated their monetary value would be on the open market. So I could see that Hannah had, you know, a quote-unquote crippled hand. The fact that she had given Samuel a son, Thomas, hadn't saved her from hard labor cultivating and processing cotton. And I could also see that Hannah had children with an enslaved man named Dick both before and after Thomas was born, which means that Samuel Townsend had thought nothing of separating her from her chosen partner, her husband, to satisfy his own desires. And so these are the the bits and pieces that I was able to use to reconstruct some of these women's experiences in slavery. You know, it's not a lot, but many historians have talked about the challenges of writing about enslaved women who often appear in the historical record only very fleetingly, you know, a name on an inventory. And so telling the women's stories requires a little more digging and a little more creativity perhaps than with the men it's reading sources against the grain as historians say asking new questions of of old sources You know, there's another line on the inventory I mentioned. Rainey, the mother of Samuel's son Wesley and daughter Caroline, gave birth to another child in 1853, not a child um, with Samuel, with her enslaved partner. And that was the year that Samuel started writing the will that would ultimately liberate Rainey and her children. And she named that child Freeman. Freeman. And so I look at that and think, you know, maybe this is a glimpse of insight into Rainey's mind that she knew about Samuel's will in 1853 and dreamed about freedom for her children. And so my hope is that these stories, as small as they can be, add to the body of work about enslaved women's lived experiences, add to our understanding of the diversity and complexity as well as the richness of their lives.
2: I would say you did that very well in this text, and it does give us another glimpse into a very, as you say, the challenges of writing um, enslaved women's history are great, but you did it very well with your text, I want to say. I want to commend you on that. As we were talking and as I was reading the book, would you consider this a triumphant narrative?
0: Yeah, as you know, No story, if it's based in real life, is ever fully triumphant or fully tragic. You know, this book is about real people's lives, so it's going to have a mixture of both, like any of our lives. There's success here, but there's also failure. It's never just one or the other. On the one hand, there were members of the Townsend family, you know, like Thomas, like Charles Osborne, who successfully used their money, their ancestry, their knowledge of the legal system to achieve a level of social and economic mobility that was unavailable to the vast majority of freed people in their time. You know, I talked about. Thomas Townsend's political career, he used his inheritance to buy a house and a farm that he was able to pass down to his children when he died well into the Jim Crow era. He was able to start building, you know, that all important generational wealth. And then Charles Osborne in Colorado He was a Union Army veteran. He put his money into silver mining and a successful business as a barber in Colorado, where he was respected and treated as an equal with his neighbors. But at the same time, you know, there are also not so successful cases. There were members of the Townsend family who faced many of the same obstacles and injustices as as other formerly enslaved people, you know, poverty, prejudice, doors shut in their faces. Woodson Townsend, one of Edmund's sons, was falsely accused of raping a white woman in 1864 and was sentenced to six years hard labor in a Kansas prison. But he was lucky to escape with his life and only receive, you know, six years uh, imprisonment. And as you know, this question of tragedy and triumph failure versus success is a difficult one and it's come up before i'm not the first person to write about the townsend family that was actually francis cabanus roberts the granddaughter of the lawyer, Cabaniss, who wrote her master's thesis on the Townsend family in 1940. And so for decades, her thesis was really the only story of the Townsend family out there, but it's a very different story than the one I'm trying to tell. Like many white historians of her era, uh, Dr. Roberts believed that slavery had been a benevolent institution, that African-Americans were innately inferior to white Americans, and therefore her conclusion was that the Townsends would have been better off if they had never been freed at all. You know, when the Townsends faced obstacles in their lives— Robert saw it as a matter of personal failure. You know, they were ignorant. They were lazy. They didn't take her grandfather's good advice. And so what I try to do in Happy Dreams of Liberty is look for the underlying factors, the systemic factors that enable triumph in some cases and put up obstacles in others, money, mixed-race ancestry, geography on the one hand, versus anti-Black racism and white supremacy on the other hand, so that, you know, when we tell the story of triumph or tragedy, it's not about personal failure or personal success. There's so much more about the society and the time that they lived in that goes into, you know, making those outcomes possible.
2: And you did that. You definitely successfully showed that in your text. I wanted to ask you, as you were writing this, both as a graduate student and as you were turning this into the book, was there one member of the Townsend family you feel that you connected with more so than the others? Was there one?
0: Oh boy, that's a hard question. Um, Because if I didn't find, you know, many of the family members stories compelling, I wouldn't have spent spent 10 years on the project, right? Uh, But I think that I have to choose Susanna Townsend, the youngest daughter. And it's kind of funny because Susanna's story didn't even make it into my dissertation. It was a case of, I need to finish this thing and I don't have time to write another chapter. Um, But I had written about her for my senior thesis at the University of Alabama. And so during the revision process for the book, I was able to add her story back in. And Susanna was Samuel Townsend's youngest child. She was seven years old when she was freed in 1860. And like I said, she was the most prolific letter writer of Samuel's daughters. She wrote nine letters to the lawyer, cabinet that we still have today. And they are truly some of the most poignant and kind of heartbreaking letters in the entire collection. She started writing to Cabanus after the Civil War when she was 12, 13 years old, and maybe because she was so young, her letters are less guarded, maybe less calculated than those that her older brothers sent. They're more like Osborne's letters to Thomas, where she's open about her circumstances and what she wants from life, and what she wants Most of all is just independence. She ends up living with her much older half-brother Wesley during the Civil War. You know, the school she'd been attending in Ohio, Wilberforce University, had closed and her mother was dead. She was an orphan. So she kind of gets foisted off on Wesley, who didn't really want her. But she was a very hard worker. She got a job as a domestic servant for a white family. She was making her own money. She was helping Wesley's wife, Adelaide, care for two young children during the war when Wesley was drafted into the Union Army. You know, she and Adelaide are holding the household together. And so she's a child shouldering really adult responsibilities. You know, she writes to cabinets that. He needs to send her money for school because she's getting older and soon it's going to be too late for her. You know, she's 12 years old, but there's this sense of urgency that she has in her letters. And so when Wesley comes back from the war and starts asserting his authority as head of the household, taking Susanna's wages, making decisions for her, she really rebels against that. She finds another job in Cincinnati taking care of this white family's kids just so she can get out from under Wesley's roof. She's constantly trying to get the money together to go back to school because she is convinced that education is her way out. And finally, she gets engaged to a white man. And so perhaps she's planning on passing across the color line, perhaps not. But at least she would have her own household and a family that she chose. She wrote this letter uh, in 1869 to Cabanis, announcing her engagement. And she signed it, Susanna forever, but not the Townsend. You know, she was shaping her own identity. And this story does end pretty tragically. This one isn't much of a triumphant narrative. She died very young, uh, just age 16. She never actually did marry that man. She never got the independence that she fought so hard for. But the force of will and the determination that comes across in her letters is just unforgettable.
2: That's like, wow. You know, it's just one of those moments of, you know, everything that she was trying to accomplish. And she did want to gain that independence from the experiences that she had had in life. As we have been talking, what are, what conclusions can be drawn about the Townsend family and what do you hope that readers take away from the book?
0: Yeah, it's tough when you're writing a family story like this one, sometimes to convince people that it's important, that it matters. And I am very much aware that in some ways, the Townsend story is a small story. They weren't major affair actors in the affairs of the nation. They weren't famous in their time. They were really ordinary people trying to improve their lives, trying to build better lives for their children. And sometimes they succeeded while other times, maybe most times, they met resistance in a society that was hostile to their dreams and ambitions because they had formerly been enslaved. But my position is that even small stories like this one can give us really valuable new perspectives on the big picture. They show us the complexity of history and the diversity of real people's experiences that can sometimes get lost in those broader narratives. And they also challenge what we think we know about how people lived in the past you know, how the Townsends were perceived and treated in their communities, how they experienced race and freedom in the 19th century really reflected the values of their specific place and time. And sometimes those values and experiences can surprise us. But these these kind of insight, insights can only come when you pay attention to those Really fine grained details of a person or family's life when you look for the small stories. And that's what I hope that readers will be able to take away from Happy Dreams of Liberty.
2: As The host today, I want to encourage readers to go out and pick up a copy of Happy Dreams of Liberty, because it is an amazing book. And as you're following the journey of the Townsend family, you learn so much about 19th century American history, African-American history, familiar relations, and the changing course of American history in the 19th century, as Dr. Morales says, as they are making that journey from slavery to freedom. Dr. Morales, thank you so much for joining me today to discuss Happy Dreams of Liberty.
0: Thank you for having me. It's It's been a thrill to be able to talk about the book. Thank you.